Well, one thing that I really like about dogs is probably how sort of active and involved they are. Like they make great companions um, and they can be a lot of fun. When I'm down at uni, I reckon I miss my cat more than my mum. I just love coming home to my dog. Uh, He's always really happy to see me and it just makes everything, uh, you know, it just brightens up my day a lot. We had a cat uh, named Auntie, this beautiful wee tabby cat. And uh, she was just one of the most social animals uh, I think I've ever come across. Because you can just go on missions with dogs and like, you know, go running, go climbing or whatever, and the dogs will come with you. Wild. It's wild. Wild. It's really wild. 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 So wild. Dunedin podcast. Cool. No mai haere mai ki te konei ipurangi o otipoti mohoao. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Wild Dunedin podcast. Ko Taylor Davies Collie Tokuikua. I'm a botany student at the University of Otago and just a general fizzer of the natural world. Kia ora koutou, ko Claire Tenei. I work as a Science Outreach Project Coordinator at the Otago Museum. Now, if you haven't stumbled across us before, this podcast is made as part of the Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature. And it's all about the amazing wildlife that's found in the city of Dunedin, in the South Island of New Zealand. So, this episode covers what I think is a topic very, very close to people's hearts. They're cute. They're soft. They make great companions. And they like to fetch. (gasps) (laughs) I love pets. I mean, I had a little doggy when I was 10. That was just my little puppy. And I minded him and taught him how to fetch and taught him how to do obstacle courses. He was so cute. He had these little brown eyebrows. But but now, the house I'm living in now, um, we have a house cat. Ooh. Mm, he's like a big ginger cat. Professor Malcolm J. McFly Ooh, is his full title. What a title. Yeah. <laughs> he's Quite very the esteemed learned. career then. Mm, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> very learned in uh, begging for food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also, he's, he gives super good cuddles sometimes oh, as well. He's, they, they just do. They, and it's proven that those, those are genuinely good, have health benefits, you know, those cuddles. Yeah, like, I don't know, sometimes when I'm feeling sad, he'll just kind of come over and climb onto my lap and, you know, just, like, snuggle up. And he does his, like, he kind of rubs his face up against my face. He's so cute. Yeah, I mean, I um I grew up, my parents have always had cats and they've still got cats now. So whenever I go home, you know, I can just steal a few little cat snuggles. And actually, one of our cats still prefers me so whenever I go home you know it, it goes from sitting on dad to sitting on me and my dad actually gets really upset about it family wars yeah they are just they're just so cute and they're just so loving and pets they really are just the best it's just a shame they're murderers oh um 
Wait, what? Murderers. Oh. Well, I want to tell you a bit of a story. So, where I'm actually from, this place called Whangarei. And not far from the city, they have this population of Kiwi. And people knew about this tiny population of Kiwi. But they wanted more. Of course they did. Kiwi are amazing. So this group got together and they started trapping stoats. And they started trapping rats. And they got all these predators down to really, really low numbers. Cool. Yeah, great. And so they were like, oh, right, let's release some more kiwi. Let's get the kiwi numbers up. But they started to find dead kiwi around the place. Oh. And so they've got rid of all the other predators. So they, everyone was really confused and just couldn't figure out what was killing the kiwi. And it turned out it was dogs. You mean like wild dogs? No. Like, like their dogs. dogs. <gasps> like the people's dogs who were trying to save the kiwi even. No. And like this wasn't just like one or two random dogs. This was just any dog would oh. kill a kiwi if it got the chance. Oh no. So after all that effort, all the trapping and getting rid of those, you know, predators like the rats and the stoats, in the end it's their own dogs. Ooh. I mean, like, we, we don't have kiwi here in Dunedin, but I guess it does make me wonder what might be going down between pets and the wildlife we have here. Yeah, well... We don't have kiwi, that's for sure. But we do have heaps of other amazing wildlife, so close, even within the city, living alongside people. And of course, these people have a lot of pets, like the professor, just roaming around. Of course, they're going to interact. I want to know more about these interactions. So I talked to Yolanda Van Hazek from the zoology department at the University of Otago. She studies these interactions in the urban environment. Well, my, my research is focused on cats, on, um, on pet cats, so I can't really talk from my own personal perspective on dogs. Um, but just looking at, at cats, which of course is a really, really contentious issue, because as you say, the cats actually um, are, are very valuable, they're valuable companions, and it's been shown that they um, can make people feel really good. So, um, so we have to keep bear that in mind. But in terms of their impacts on wildlife of course um, cats kill wildlife and do they actually have impacts on populations the answer is probably because there are so many cats especially around cities so um, people tend to underestimate I think the impact that cats have because their own cat maybe catches one or two things and brings something back home you know maybe once a month but they have to remember that um, that the whole urban landscape is completely saturated with cats. There are lots of them. There's probably more than 225 per square k. Um, we've tracked cats and we've um, we've followed their movements, and we we can um, I think for an on average, a cat covers about 16 different properties in its in its home range. So if you imagine that a whole lot of cats are doing that, then you know every property has several cats roaming through it. So those 
little creatures like lizards and um, and birds uh, are having to encounter all of all of these different um, cats, and it and it's tough for for them. So we know they're wandering far and wide, and we know they're in incredible densities. But I want to find out exactly what kind of effects these pets were having. And to do so, I wanted to talk to someone on the front line. Jordana White is one of the founding members of the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital, an organisation set up to help these injured and sick animals. I asked her the exact effects that wildlife were having on their patients. We do see quite a lot of predation in our patients. Um, and predation, when we label an animal that comes in for predation, it, that's a fairly broad term. So that could be natural predation, uh, for example, a shark biting a penguin, but it could also be a dog bite or um, a cat attack. And we see uh, quite a range of animals that come in specifically with pet, dog, and cat wounds. Um, so we've had shags, kateroo, and several species of penguin, including a pretty rare snares-crested penguin um, coming in with a dog bite. Uh, Little blue penguins, of course, and yellow-eyed penguins, unfortunately. Um, They don't need any more issues, especially this season. It's been a pretty rough season for them, so they certainly don't need any help from uh, dogs. And we do see a lot of what we call backyard birds coming in with cat attacks. Um, So that would be the birds that we typically feed in the winter season. So a lot of people like to supplementary feed uh, bellbirds and tui. Last year we had 15% of our patients were labeled as coming in with predation. So that's about 67 patients that we saw last year. So again, that's a pretty broad term um, in regards to what what the um, predator was, but it certainly includes cat and dog attacks. Um, so we don't always know what injuries are caused by predation. So we had another 38% of our patients um, came in labeled as trauma. So that's 170 of our patients last year in 2018. And that certainly a portion of those probably will be a result of predation by cats and dogs. But I couldn't, we, if we don't know for sure, we can't label it that way. I would point to a study that was done here at the University of Otago around domestic cats and how many native animals they were killing every year. Um, So that was done out of the zoology department here at the University of Otago. And uh, it was a study of 208 cats in Dunedin. And it showed that those cats kill more birds, skinks, geckos, and weta than rats and mice. So that is significant. Um, And I will just put that into numbers. Um, So every cat that was involved in that study was an average of 13.4 animals per cat that they killed over the course of the study, uh, and that was for a total of 378 um, animals, 82 of which were birds at the time. So it's pretty significant. And if you extrapolate that out to how many pet cats there are in New Zealand, uh, that starts to become quite substantial. Wait, what? That's just mind-boggling. I I always thought, like, rats and mice were the big killers here in New Zealand. And you're telling me that the cats are killing more birds and lizards than rats and mice? Don't forget the wetter. But I actually looked further into this study, and uh, Yolanda is actually one of the researchers on it. And the study found 
that not only were the cats the biggest predators, they were killing more than rats and stoats, but they were also, when scaled up across the need, and so they took the cats in the study and then scaled across projected cat numbers for the city, which is obviously quite high, they projected that this, for some species of bird, they were bringing back total numbers greater than the predicted total population of that bird. Wait, hold on. So when they scale the study up to the number of cats that are around Dunedin, they're actually taking out a number of birds that's higher than the predicted population of that bird? That's crazy. Like, obviously it's very hard to predict the number of birds and to predict the number of cats, but this is still a phenomenal issue. Yeah. I don't know, I haven't seen Professor Malcolm J. McFly bring back a bird. Now, like we call him Mal for short in the house. Maybe that's appropriate here. Yeah, we we probably should get permission. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll check with his people and just make sure. But I, I haven't seen Mal bring a bird back to the house, but I have heard him fighting in the night. And so there's definitely other cats around. And I guess... Yeah, the study shows they're just wandering all over the place. And eating the birds in your backyard? No. Now, Jordana is also the chair of the New Zealand Sea Lion Trust. And she is incredibly passionate about the interactions between dogs and sea lions that can happen on our Dunedin beaches. Remember back to season one? You told that story about how these awesome animals return to the coast? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's such a good story. The story of Mum. Ah, we call it, it was Keeping Mum is the name of the episode. We are just so lucky to have them back on our beaches. Yeah, they're so cool. And, of course, the the other issue is that people love beaches. And Mm. where people go, so do their four-legged friends. And so you can imagine there is going to be some conflict there. Um, Well, you'd be surprised. It's, It's probably a pretty big dog that's going to really harm a sea lion but the level of disturbance that the sea lions experience from dogs is pretty high on our city beaches so the sea lions of course they don't discriminate by beach when they see somewhere they want to rock up they're going to rock up they don't care if it's st Clair or smales or allens another you know any of the dog beaches um and they you know that they're Animals that spend a lot of time and energy foraging at sea, they don't have easy lives. They need their rest, and they shouldn't be disturbed by people's dogs going up and barking at them. And we see it all the time. It's constant, trying to keep people's dogs away from sea lions. And and you get the same sentiment from dog owners who, of course, I think mean really, really well. But they say, oh, my dog would never hurt a sea lion. And you know what? That's probably true but they don't realize how much disturbance is being caused to the animal by just being woken up in the first place and then being barked at. So it's just, we wouldn't like it if our neighbor came over and yelled at us while we were sleeping. So why are we letting our dogs do that to sea lions? And there, there is also a, a real concern from us at the trust uh, around dogs near sea lion pups. So certain times of the year, um, this time of year, in fact, in um, late summer and early autumn, 
the pups are often left on their own while moms are fishing. So they could be gone. Moms could be gone for a day, sometimes more than one day. If they're out on longer foraging trips, those pups are really vulnerable. And you, it doesn't take a very large dog to hurt a sea lion pup. Um, thankfully, we don't have any instances of that anytime recently. Um, we don't. It hasn't happened, but with the sea lion population growing in Dunedin, there will likely be more interactions between dogs and pups if we don't take control of that. Incredible, isn't it? Even when dogs aren't even trying, they're not even intentionally going after these animals in an aggressive way, they're just being dogs. They can still harass sea lions to an absolutely critical level on our Dunedin beaches. And this isn't even to mention facts about dogs going after penguins or even carcachicks, like uh, what Alicia was saying in the last podcast about carca returning to the peninsula. But cats, cats can do some other things that aren't necessarily predation. These are secondary effects, and some of them could even be classed as biological warfare. Something that people don't realize, and this was actually something that I just learned last year when the hospital opened, is that birds are actually very susceptible to bacterial infection that is caused by cat saliva. So even if a cat doesn't bite a bird, if, say, it's just holding it in its mouth and then lets the bird go and it can fly off, if the bird preens and ingests the cat saliva, it can cause a bacterial infection that leads to death. So people say, oh, I scared the cat away, or I scared the cat, and the bird flew away, so everything's fine. That's not necessarily the case. So it's, it's even thinking about it with knowing that, it's even more important to reduce those interactions in the first place. So we've had a, heaps of birds in hospital that don't actually have any wounds, but we have to treat anyway because we know that they've come into contact with the cat's mouth. The other thing that cats do is they create what's called this landscape of fear. So um, even if they don't uh, kill something, they they actually um, change the behaviour of the other animals that live there because the other animals know that cats are in that landscape and so it affects the way that they, the the amount of time they they spend doing things like collecting food. They might um, spend a lot more of their time being vigilant rather than uh, engaging in other kinds of behaviours. They do spread disease, and probably the the one that people are most familiar with is um, called Toxoplasma. It's a parasite, and there have been um, incidences where native birds um, have died from catching um, this parasite, which is spread through cat feces. And also, um, there's concern at the moment about some of our marine mammals, um, like dolphins, getting uh, Toxoplasma, and that's from cat feces that have washed out into the sea. And this is, I think, even more interesting. <laughs> they can have an effect on human health too, because the Toxoplasma parasite is—it's an interesting one. It actually um, burrows into your brain, so we have it too. We we can get it. I think in some countries, as many as twenty percent of the, as much as twenty percent of the population, is infected with Toxoplasma. Um, so normally, Toxoplasma is in a, what's called the intermediate host, which is a rat. And um, the, paras- the the final host is the cat. So the 
parasites are notorious for changing the behavior of their hosts so that they can be passed on to their, their next host. And what they do to rats is they actually make the rats less vigilant so they're more likely to be caught by cats and passed on to cats. Um, so they, the rats indulge in what's called more risky behaviours. So what's been found in humans is the same thing. So humans that have this bacteria um, also are more inclined to engage in risky behaviours. So they're more inclined to do be impulsive. They're more likely to be involved in traffic accidents, for example. <laughs> and it's been associated with various sort of um, mental diseases like depression and um, aggression, super aggression and even there's been an association with schizophrenia. So so toxoplasma actually has quite serious implications for human health as well as marine mammal health. I'll never be able to look at Mal the same way again. Mind-controlling bacteria? Ah. Oh. Yeah, I mean, really, truly, cats including including Professor McFly, are really not good news. Oh, come on. He's so cute. He's so fluffy. And there, it, it, there must... Oh, no. Hold on. I mean, rats and mice, okay? Big problem here in conservation in New Zealand. I hear it all the time. Um, and, so, and surely, you know, like, this is, this is why people kept cats and dogs in the first place, to keep mice and rats away so surely surely the professor is out there you know limiting the numbers of mice around isn't that a good thing yeah it would be a good thing but i did ask yolanda about that um well it certainly affects them like um it's been shown really recently in some research in the u.s for example that this landscape of fear affects rats so and the purpose of that particular bit of research was to question this idea that um, cats control rat populations because one of, of course, one of the arguments against controlling cat movements is that we'll have an, an explosion of rats and the rats will um, actually uh, have have a worse impact on native species than the cats would. And this is a, a really pertinent question. But in, in this particular research, it showed that by creating this landscape of fear, when there were cats around, the rats just became less visible to humans um, whereas when you took the cats away, the, the rats um, just came out more and and so people actually saw them. So the perception was um, that there were more rats when the cats <laughs> had been removed from that area. But in fact, the rat numbers were exactly the same. It was just that the behaviour of the rats had changed. So to answer your question, yes, um, it does create a landscape of fear for all the other th animals that cats might catch. It's not just for the birds as well and you know lizards and things. It could, yeah, it could. But, uh, you know, you'd have to tease it apart. Because like, <laughs> um, at the moment, yeah, we don't really know how much um, that cat populations actually do regulate those other predator populations or how much those other pre predators are mostly regulated by what we call bottom-up bottom up processes. So that just means the amount of resources are available, the amount of food. Do cats actually make a difference? Um 
no one's actually tested that because it's really, really hard to do. Um, if you imagine trying to do that in an urban area in a proper sort of experimental way, you, you'd have to get, say, a whole suburb to, of people, with, of cat owners to all agree to keep their cats in all the time. And then you could look at the impact of, that that had on, say, rats and mice in that particular suburb. But, you know, it's virtually impossible to set up a proper experiment to test that. So, yeah, the whole cats control other mammals thing, it isn't really that clear. And Jordana did kind of say that dogs can indirectly kind of help wildlife, since usually it's people walking dogs who find injured wildlife like penguins for them. But it is kind of clutching at straws to find positives here. Okay, so... Our dogs are stressing the sea lions on the Dunedin beaches. Cats are just killing wildlife left, right and centre, like Terminator style. But, I mean, we can't be the only ones dealing with this. Surely not. Like, there, there are pet cats and dogs all over the world. Yeah, and I asked Yolanda about this. How does New Zealand compare? Um, well, it's definitely a worldwide thing, yep. <laughs> so there's been quite a few studies done in different parts of the world that are talking about the problem of cats, um, like they're really concerned in the US and in, in, and in Australia. Um, of course, Australia has lots of these little native cute mammals that cats catch, you know, with nice little names like bilbies and things like that. But so, in fact, it's more complicated in Australia. I mean, at least in New Zealand, we don't have all these little native mammals that we have to be concerned about. Um, and But in Australia, they're actually a little bit ahead of us in, in terms of thinking about cats and the general population are, are much more open to... Um, to you know, keeping their cats inside or just um, accepting that their cats need to be confined in, in some places in Australia. There are uh, local bylaws that mean that cats have to be um, confined all the time. Oh, this just keeps getting worse. I get... I mean, what, what, what do I do? What do we do? Like, I love Mal, but... I love wildlife, you know? <laughs> I make a podcast about it. It's really tricky. We know that cats and dogs do an amazing amount of good for a lot of people. And they are more than just pets to some people. They have real positive impacts in people's lives. And people are really crazy about them. I mean, maybe it's just the mind-controlling bacteria. But it seems like they really rule the internet and our lives. Well, yeah, I mean, cats have ruled the internet for years. <laughs> so many down. good memes. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, the, the flip side of this is that you, you can't really cuddle a kiwi or a, a gecko won't come running to greet you when you get home. And, and pets fill a role for a lot of people that native wildlife just can't do. But, like, what what do we do? Do we have to choose? Because I worry that that's going to be an impossible decision for some people. But, I mean, from what Yolanda and Jordana have been saying, like, if they're as bad as rats and mice and preying on native wildlife, 
then this is a huge issue. Well, that's one of the interesting things, is that cats aren't even included in Predator Free 2050. We know the damage they can cause. We know that's comparable in a lot of cases to other introduced mammals. Are we just giving them a free pass because they're cute? Hold on. Are you advocating that we trap cats and dogs to save wildlife? Like, are you saying that Mal is a predator that needs trapping? Like, do I need to keep him away from you? No, 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 no. I mean, how do you even suggest that? I just, I just think that that is maybe the point. That this is not about broad-scale predator control or community trapping projects, predator-free islands. We don't want to go down the road of battle for pet owners versus non-pet owners. And there are some things we can do that can make things better. Yeah, I mean, there are some people that do really hate cats, but they are definitely a minority, like a really small minority. <laughs> a lot of people are crazy about cats. And, um, and you know, it's, it's not difficult to understand why, because they're beautiful creatures and, um, and they're often, you know, lovely companions. I, I think confinement is, you know, the best solution. Um, of course, we have problems with stray cats. As long as we keep cats as pets, then people will be abandoning their cats and, um, and stray, stray cats are a real problem. So I think we need to, to think more about um, controlling stray cat numbers. At the moment, there's a lot of opposition to, to actually you know, killing stray cats, and even if it's done humanely. But a lot of, a lot of these cats are living miserable lives and um, trap neuter return pro- programs uh, some improve the welfare of the cats in those cat colonies, but um, but of course they don't address the problem of, of disease spread and also of predation of other species. Because I think if we keep our cats inside, or if we keep them even in our properties in runs, um, and also there are sort of cat-proof fences that that you know you can fit to the top of of your fences that um, have sort of roller things that stop your cats from jumping over the top, then um, we can still have our cats and enjoy all the benefits we get from having cats and all the companionship. Um, and I think it would, and that would still help wildlife. It won't help the wildlife that's in your garden, <laughs> but it would help wildlife that's outside gardens. And I think also it would be more fair on the people who don't have cats because there are, I mean, there are more people who don't have cats than do have cats. Um, and a lot of those people are trying to do things in their own gardens to support other kinds of wildlife. And it's really frustrating for them that they have no control over the, the fact that other people's cats can enter their gardens and undo all of the, you know, the good that they've been trying to do to bring birds and lizards into their gardens. So it would help that. So I think, yeah, the answer to that question is, no, we don't have to say, we don't have to, you know, say that we can't have cats. We can still have cats, but just keep them in a slightly different way if if you just google things like um catios (laughs) and uh just cat confinement because a lot of the stuff is being done in australia there's heaps of stuff um online that and even plans for building sort of catios uh, in your backyard so those are uh, just kind of runs that that your cat can basically be outside but still be confined and there's lots of if you google cat um 
proof fences, then you'll see that there's a number of different um, models that you can do to either, you know, to fit onto your own fence. So th there is a lot of information. Oh man, aren't catios cool? I mean, not only do they just look super cool, but isn't catio just the best name ever? Yeah, and I guess necessary. I mean, who knows what the professor is up to at night time, but I, yeah, I presume he's probably in on the carnage in some way. But what if people just aren't into this, you know? What if they don't want to constrain their cat or put their dog on a leash or fork out money to build a catio? It comes back to community. Remember that story I was telling at the start? The one about the Kiwi and the dogs? Well, Todd Hamilton from Backyard Kiwi, he'll tell us where he's at now with the program. Somewhere like the Whangarei Heads, we've got 3,000 people, probably got oh, well over 500 dogs. We've got 900 Kiwi running around, and these days it's pretty rare for one to meet the other because people know about their Kiwi, they walk their dogs on a lead, they keep them appropriately fenced or in at night, and um, it makes a huge difference. We had a much smaller Kiwi population 20 years ago, and we had dog kill after dog kill, of just uncontrolled dogs killing Kiwi, that is. Um, now, even though we've got a much higher population, haven't completely gone we get visitors bringing dogs that are a bit naughty and the odd dog gets out sometimes and the odd kiwi sneaks under the fence and crawls into the kennel but as a whole our population's growing and growing and growing because people are controlling their dogs well we we are the community and we are the dog owners a lot of us in backyard kiwi are dog owners so we know firsthand that dogs kill kiwi and we just tell that story politely we don't shove it down people's throats we just tell them about their kiwi give them opportunities like live kiwi releases so people can come up and see kiwi their kiwi going into their backyard it's not an abstract idea then and hear the story about how they smell and how vulnerable they are to dogs and then we just tell the story. And when we first started telling, telling the story of Kiwi at Whangarei Heads being released, unfortunately, it was a story of, here's another Kiwi death from a dog. Here's another Kiwi death from a dog. Now we don't, now we can tell the story. It's much more positive. So I'd like to think we're pretty proud. I drive down the road, my car's got Kiwi stickers all over it, and I get a sore arm from waving to people with dogs that are walking them on the lead, happily waving back at me. They don't see me as a threat. They see me as looking after their Kiwi and allowing them to have dogs in the right place. You've got to have a heavy hand in some places, and if on ground land, if a law's been broken, it's their job to enforce it. But most of our Kiwi are on private property, and we could use enforcement, but actually, and I used to go and chase dogs and talk to people and threaten them and things like that, but these days... I call in to see a new person with a dog and the person tells me they've already been spoken to by the neighbours on three sides about keeping their kiwi in. Nicely some of them, not so nicely others, but it's socially unacceptable to have your dog wander at the Whangarei Heads. So it's the community, not policing, just informing. If you don't know there's kiwi there, because you can't see them, and you don't know your dog is a problem, you, you're probably not going to fix things up. But if somebody says hey hey buddy we've got lots of kiwi here did you hear them last night yeah we did well you won't hear them again if your dog wanders and um 
it's fantastic for me because it's not very nice going up and haranguing people all the day, all the day long. So I don't have to do that anymore. It used to be a big part of my job. It's a very, very small part now. Um, it's a community self, oh, I suppose, monitoring sounds over the top, but just, just a bit of nothing like a bit of social pressure to keep people doing the right thing. Wow, that is super interesting. So just this group of people that are really passionate about having this iconic native bird around have created this environment where it is socially unacceptable to have out-of-control pets. I guess the first thing is knowledge. The knowledge that pets are just capable of doing these quite terrible things. And just like Todd said, it's not about shoving it down people's throats. And the second is spreading the word. Realising that we're all in this together. We all live in the city together. We all love pets and wildlife. But we do have to have this conversation. No matter how hard it is. And even though they have both seen some absolutely terrible issues caused by pets and they both know exactly how bad things are for native wildlife Jordana and Yolanda actually had very similar things to say here I guess cat owners they they have their um, they are very attached to their cats and they have their own values and perspectives um, and we always have to keep that in mind um, I think that that um, making accusations is really counterproductive um, because this is um, an issue that we can only we can only kind of progress by by having conversations and uh, maintaining kind of lines of communication between conserva- well, conservationists and cat owners and coming up with a solution that actually is um, is palatable for everyone. Um, so I think that the the predator-free Dunedin um, initiative is is really great, and ultimately, you know, cats sit outside predator-free New Zealand anyway. But um, so I think in parallel with that predator-free, if if we can keep sort of keep talking about the issue of cats and rem- reminding people about the impacts that their cats have on wildlife and um, coming up with sort of palatable solutions and providing evidence that those solutions are, um, are workable, then I think that's the way that we have to go forward. But it is a really tricky issue because this is so personal for so many people and they feel so strongly. And, the, and I think a lot of people take it personally, like, oh, you don't, you don't want dogs and cats, meaning you hate my dog and my cat. And that's not the case, you know, it's not, a, it's not personal. It's about those big numbers that we're seeing um, with predation. And I, 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 so I think there has to be, we have to be kind to both sides and we have to listen to both sides and see what's workable. Because I do think that there is a place for us to have pets in our lives. I think that's, that is something that we can have and still reduce the predation numbers. But we, um, yeah, I'm not sure I have a really cohesive answer to that question. I just think we all we all need, yeah, pet owners and non-pet owners have to meet in the middle 
Definitely. And I think there's lots of people like you and I who love animals, including cats and dogs, but don't have them and feel fairly strongly about um, not having those pets because of the impact that they have on wildlife. Okay, so it's not us versus them. Like, feline fanatics versus cockable cuddlers. And, and I can love both wildlife and Mal. But I do need to face the facts. He is probably up to his cute fluffy neck in this. And all of us, we just need to talk. And I guess not avoid the issue, but also not point fingers and name and shame either. That's exactly right. If you own a pet, or if you don't, there are things we can consider doing to protect wildlife. We can contain our pets, walk them on a lead, put a bell on your cat, make them a super duper sweet catio. But most importantly, the numbers are just too high for this to be a taboo subject. We need to talk. Talk to your neighbour about their cat wandering. Have a yarn with that guy on the beach whose dog's running around. We are a community. We are the change we want to make. It's only going to get more important here in Dunedin as Parita Free Dunedin kicks off. But imagine, just imagine what that might mean for our backyards, our green spaces, our city, and the amazing wildlife and pets that we could have in them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wild Dunedin Podcast. This podcast is created by Claire Kincannon, Jamie McCauley and Taylor Davies Colley as part of the Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature. We get support from the Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature, the Otago Museum and the Otago Regional Council Ecofund. The amazing music you heard throughout was created by a very talented local Dunedin musician, the amazing Molly Devine. And the wild intro was created by Paul Corbett. Thanks, guys. We are supported by the Otago Access Radio crew, who also play the podcast on the radio. But if you've enjoyed this podcast, then you should definitely subscribe to the channel because we're going to drop some bonus content into the podcast feed. So, subscribe, share it online, tell all your friends. Until next time, kakitiamo.